Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts that your word may direct and rule us according to your will, that it may comfort us in our afflictions, that it may defend us from all error and lead us into all truth through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Luke 2, verse 39. When Mary and Joseph had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look! Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years, and in divine and human favor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Indeed, thanks be to God for the reading of Holy Scripture this morning. And I want to, uh, I want to take this opportunity just to again say a huge thank you to everyone in our church for being so faithful and irrepressible in the face of all the challenges that we encounter. And I'm really grateful to our church staff. I'm grateful for their leadership. I'm thankful to God for the faithfulness of our deacons through a very difficult year, our trustees, our elders, our worship ministries. I think about our choir and our praise band. I think about our audiovisual team. This has been a challenging time. I'm thankful to God for all of you. And I'm also thankful to God for you, the 
members of First Presbyterian Church. You are the heart and soul of who we are as a church. And God has truly walked with us through this very challenging year. And what I love is that you've let your light shine through some very, very rocky times. And what I would ask that we do is that we do it again. Let's do it again. Hopefully it won't be as challenging, but even if the challenges do come, we're going to stand together again, united, knowing that the presence of the Lord is with us each and every day. And whatever 2022 has for us, we know that it will never be bigger than God. Somebody, when I was in Jamaica, I heard this phrase that God is large and in charge. And I thought, uh, very, very typical of how we Jamaicans think. We put it all together. God is large and in charge. And so I offer that to you this morning. So, yes, as we heard through the music and through Hannah's welcome, we're still in that Christmas season, what some call Christmas tide. And for many of us, for some of us, I should say, this is sort of a, a low key Sunday, a coming down from all the, the hype that has been the Advent and Christmas season. And in many Christian communities, the focus, the focus on Jesus mostly is on two spectrums. On one end, we focus on his birth at Christmas appropriately. And then we sort of jump this huge chasm. And for the rest of the year, mostly we focus on the last three years of his life. And you think about it, and you may not have realized this, but most of Jesus's life was hidden and seemingly unspectacular. And why do I say that? Well, little is known in the Bible of the time period before Jesus' public ministry, and yet so much of our church planning, our worship planning, our Bible teaching, our small group studies, they focus on the last three years of his public life as recorded in the Gospels. In his last three years, as you know, Jesus gathered his disciples. He preached the kingdom of God and repentance of sins. He worked miracles and healings. He instituted the two sacraments of, of baptism and Lord's Supper. He founded the church. And of course, he offered himself to the Father by suffering on the cross, dying, was buried. And on the third day, he was, ro he, he was raised from the dead. He was seen by his disciples and he ascended to, to, to heaven. And we know the plot line of Jesus' life, but this leaves us with a gap, doesn't it? Between the ordinariness of his first 30 years and then the extraordinariness of the last three years of his life. And through the centuries, a lot of scholars have tried to speculate. We even have these second century books like the Gospel of Thomas, or we have these other texts that were written in the fourth and sixth century that tried to speculate about what Jesus's life was like during those, those early years into his 30s. Some of the questions that we hear often are questions like this, why did Jesus live these seemingly two separate, distinct stages in his life? Why was there seemingly such a a difference between the first 90% of his life versus the last 10% of his life. And what did Jesus do with the first 90% of his life? 
We don't really know. We don't have a lot of credible information. But one of the truths that we struggle to embrace is that much of the life that Jesus lived was lived rather ordinary. And much of the life that we live, it's pretty ordinary. It's predictable. Don't you agree? And I wonder if sometimes in an effort to live spectacular lives, because that's what we, we were all told, you need to live this extraordinary life so that you can avoid boredom. And in doing that, we miss the blessing of life in ordinary time, ordinary spirituality. And I think today's reading that we just heard from Richard offers up a couple practices that all of us can embrace that will help us appreciate the power of ordinary time. One practice that I see in the text is what I call family tradition or family traditions. And whether you're married or single, you have traditions. Let's look at verses 41 and 42. If you have your Bibles open, where we read that now every year, and I underscored that in my notes, every year, Jesus' parents went up to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Can you picture that? That's a tradition. And when he was 12 years old, they went, and I love that phrase, as usual, for the festival. And so from the day he was born to his 12th year on earth, his family had these traditions that they followed. And I would imagine that most likely Joseph and Mary have embraced this tradition because that's what their families did. And those same rituals were passed on to them. And now Mary and Joseph are passing them on to their children. Can you picture this? Year after year, Jesus' family went to Jerusalem for Passover, and we got a sense of a family doing what they do each year, just like your family did yesterday, just like your family did at Thanksgiving. There are these cherished family traditions, and they become second nature. And as Jesus grew from a toddler to a 12-year-old, to a tweener, as we say today, he made this trip 12 times. You know what's powerful about traditions? Traditions provide a sense of identity. Here I am over the hill at this late stage in my life, and I still orient myself back to where I was from because of the deep traditions. They give me a source of identity. They give you, hopefully, a source of identity. They strengthen family bonds. That's what traditions do. They indicate what families value, and they're a great source of teaching and moral and spiritual development. I think of that wonderful scene from The Fiddler on the Roof. It's the story about this Russian family that's forced to flee their homeland. And in the song tradition, Tevye, the wise father, says that without our traditions, the community of mankind would lose its grounding. Because of our traditions, Tevye sings, we have kept our balance for many, many years. Don't you love that? We've kept our balance for many, many years. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Traditions. Traditions in ordinary time. 
And then there's another practice that I see here, and it's the practice and the blessing of having mentors or guides. We could call them parents, but not all of us are parents. But all of us can be mentors and we can be guides. Remember in verses 39 and through 40, where Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to the temple at eight days old to be circumcised. And you look back at chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, it said that after eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child. And he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, and then this line, they, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be designated as holy to the Lord. Now, don't miss this, my brothers and sisters, without parents, without mentors, without guides committed to the well-being of a child, so much gets lost. And these, this couple, this mom and dad acted on his behalf. They didn't wait until Jesus could decide for himself, right? They took what was passed on to them and they passed it on to their children. And they knew how important a role they played in shaping their children's lives. Luke mentions that, that he's 12 years old. Now, how much should we make of this? As I was preparing for this, I saw some people trying to link this 12-year mark with uh, a bar mitzvah, that somehow Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to experience some kind of a bar mitzvah. The problem with that is the ritual of a bar mitzvah was only invented about 400 years ago. And we're talking about an experience of Jesus that happened over 2,000 years ago. I think it's a great way to think about it. A bar mitzvah, where a young man or a young woman at a bat mitzvah becomes a son or a daughter of the commandment. In Jewish culture, indeed, 12 or 13 was the beginning of that all-important transition to adulthood. So it's as though Luke is giving us a snapshot into Jesus' growing up years as he transitions from a tweener into the main central area of the, of the gospel story, and that is Jesus's adult ministry. But, but let me be careful, though, how I say this. I really want to be careful how I say this. Luke doesn't give the sense that Mary and Joseph thought it was their responsibility to train Jesus up so that he could take on the role of a savior. If you've been reading the Christmas narrative very closely, you'll realize that the parents don't know what's going on. All Mary could do is just keep treasuring these things in her heart and saying, okay, I'll think about it next week and maybe I'll try to understand what's going on. They didn't know what's going on. They weren't trying to train Jesus up to be a savior. No, the scripture account and the sense that we get is that they understood their role simply as parents. We're just here to parent this little boy. They're just parents of multiple children in a, in a Jewish family from Nazareth living under Roman rule, and they were just trying to do what parents and mentors do, just be consistent, one day at a time, rain or shine, we're going to show up. And I think what happens to us today, of course, and we see it in sports, and we see it in so many areas, where parents or mentors put a lot of pressure on themselves, thinking that 
they must determine even the vocation of their children. But what we have here is not vocation, vocational grooming. That's not what we read here. But what we are reading here is simply the creation of an environment that facilitates growth, that facilitates respect and appreciation for hard work. And we heard Hannah talking about how Jesus maybe learned how to, how to be a carpenter, whether it was stone masonry or whether it was actually carpentry with wood, we're not sure. But you can just picture Jesus alongside his father learning the value and appreciating hard work and learning what decency looks like, learning what love for others is all about, learning empathy and love for God. In other words, what these parents and mentors were doing was simply creating a moral framework in which this boy was raised. And then when you fast forward to Luke 4, here's Jesus at 30 years old, and we read these precious words. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Now, where did he learn that? In a book? No. It all started when he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. The parents started shaping that moral framework for Jesus. These customs were baked in through family practices and modeling from parents and mentors. And then when we walk with our children as mentors, as parents, we hope and we pray that they will find an area of calling that is rewarding and will serve the needs of others around them. That's what we hope for for all of our children. But let's remember this morning that no parent, no mentor is perfect. And what happens next in our reading sounds like a scene from that 1990 classic Home Alone where Macaulay Culkin is, is left alone at home. And it's only when they're finally on the plane and the parents are thinking, oh, we made it through O'Hare. We're on the plane that mom looks at dad and says, where's Kevin? And dad looks at mom and says, where's Kevin? And they start looking around and they realize Kevin is missing. And the parents are on the verge of a heart attack. While back at home, Kevin is just cool and calm, and he's just dishing out some serious punishment on some would-be burglars. In verse 43, you read that the parents aren't perfect. When the festival of Passover is ended, the family and friends gather up everything and they leave town. And Jesus stays behind, and his parents didn't know this, and they thought that he was with cousin so-and-so. And then three days later on the road, now you say, well, what kind of parents is that? Three days later, they start asking the question, where is Jesus? And they start looking around. And Mary said, I thought he was with Uncle so-and-so. And Joseph said, I know, I thought he was with our neighbor. And they can't find him. Panic-stricken, they turn around and they head back to Jerusalem to find their son. And when they found him, guess what? He was hanging out with these Jerusalem intellectuals, the teachers and the leaders in the temple. And he was talking to them and he was asking them these questions that they themselves couldn't answer. And they're saying, wow, who is this kid? Where is he from? Where is parents? Now, it's interesting that in our, in our English reading, it says that Mary and you know, Joseph were filled with anxiety. I mean, it's a, it's a much stronger word in the Greek than that. It means that they were literally being 
tortured by the uncertainty of where their son was. And though Mary and Joseph were astonished that as listening and watching their son and his ability to interact so well with these teachers, their hearts were still tortured with worry. And you hear it as they talk to him. Why would you treat us this way? Where have you been? And what you're getting is that these parents loved this boy. And Jesus also loved them and cared about them, even though his answer to them sounds a little snippy and a little a little uh, over the top. He says, well, what's the big deal? Don't you know what I'm about? I'm about the father's business. Don't you know this is where I'm supposed to be? And Mary doesn't know a thing that he's talking about. And you read the third account where Luke says she treasured these things in her heart. What I love, though, in verse 51, when, when Joseph and Mary said, okay, let's go. Let's get out of here. It says that Jesus was obedient to them. And if you as a boy or a girl, a young person, if you're here watching the service, I want you to take note of this, that Jesus was obedient to his parents. And Hannah was right. I mean, we're talking about God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% human. And in his humanity, we read that Jesus submitted himself to his parents. I mean, that's the whole point of what we're learning here about Jesus. And so through faithful rituals and with love and the oversight of parents and mentors, we read that Jesus grew physically, he grew morally, he grew spiritually in wisdom and in human favor. And all of this, I would suggest to you, happened not in some Disneyland kind of spectacular eye-popping experiences. No, it, they happened in very ordinary circumstances. And the challenge for you and for me is that we underestimate the cumulative power of the faithfulness of ordinary times and how those times do shape us and change our lives. Getting up every day and doing simple, mundane, ordinary things like making the bed, doing dishes, praying with our children, opening the Bible and reading a portion of scripture every day, saying I'm sorry in the push and pull of conflict, cooking that simple meal, sitting at the dinner table and eating that meal as you talk to other people around you without a cell phone. Going to church, in winter, in spring, in summer, or fall. And most of the days you go to church, it's not that spectacular, but you go. The ritual of giving, giving your time, giving your talents, giving your resources, and then teaching your children to do the same so that they can also grow up with a moral framework around generosity. And then recognize that we are the role models to our children. The fellowship of the church is not just for our own sort of spiritual consumption. That's one of the reasons why when you walk into our sanctuary at the very back of the church, we have a space back there 
for children to hang out. Why? Because we want them to be rooted in the ritual of worship, of being in that space. And all the studies show that when these kids graduate high school and go off to college, that ritual of going to church, doesn't matter where they go off to college, they're going to find a place for worship. Why? Because we created space for them. And we as a church joined their parents in helping to parent them. You see, part of the mission of our church is to pass on faith to the next generation. And this means for us, first friends, we've got to get to, we, we, we have to find ways to get to know our children. Yes, they have parents, but we are also allies to the parents of these children as we help our parents raise their children. And simple as it may sound, let's remember that sometimes the greatest distance to travel is the distance from the mouth to the feet. Can I say that again? The greatest distance to travel is the distance from the mouth to the feet. And what that means is as parents and mentors, we're called to talk the talk, yes, but then we must also walk the walk. And our children are watching us. So let them see how real God is in the day-to-day -day journey of life. Let them see us fail. Let them see us struggle. Let them see us get back up on our feet. Let them hear our stories and our testimonies of how we got over. And I think Jesus saw some of this in his parents. And he saw this in his relatives like Zachariah and Elizabeth and the rest of his extended family. Simple, consistent, faithful, day-to-day, season-after-season, walking with God, not in spectacular ways, but in ordinary ways. And that leaves a long, deep mark of spiritual formation in the lives of our children. And no wonder we're told then that Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. And may that be so for all of us and for all the families and the children in first prayers, slow and steady, a long obedience in the same direction. A book that I used to read to our kids was called Short Steps for Long Games. Don't, don't overlook the ordinariness, the spiritual ordinariness of your day. And may God strengthen you as you strengthen others in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's children say, Amen. Amen.